Hello, everyone, and welcome to Conversations in Global Health, a podcast led by three students from King's College London, sponsored by Circle U. We seek to bring awareness to the pressing global health issues of today in an accessible manner by engaging in important conversations with field experts offering insights into their fascinating work. We're so glad you could join us for today's episode, What's the Deal with Vaccine Inequity, COVID-19, and Beyond? Today's episode is hosted by Stuthi. Uh, So hi, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of our podcast. We will be speaking about vaccine inequity today with Amanda Glassman. And before we begin, I'd just like her to say a couple of words about who she is and what she does. So over to you, Amanda. Thank you so much for inviting me on. My name is Amanda Glassman. I'm the executive vice president and a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development. We're a nonpartisan independent think tank based in D.C. and London. Okay, great. Um, Should we get right into it? Yes, go for it. Okay, these are very heavy questions, um, but let's go. Firstly, discussing the speed of the vaccine development. So historically, after the Second World War, according to your record, it took around 10 to 15 years from the time the vaccine was first conceived till when it was granted license for use. Um, But for the COVID-19 vaccine Moderna, this period lasted just a little under a year. So what contributed more to the speed? Was it a political pressure issue or was it just advancement in technology? I'm sure it was a combination of both, but what, how, how did each of them contribute to the speed at which this one was developed? Yeah, I think uh, one key issue was that um, some countries like the United States actually had set up a new agency whose whole mandate was to prepare for um, biosecurity threats. And that mm-hmm. agency is called BARDA, which is the Biological Advanced Defense Research Agency. Um, okay. And that entity, you know, sort of took, the, the US and high income countries have always um, financed research and development for vaccines and against uh, different kinds of diseases historically. But this is the first time that we actually had a, a an entity set up that had tools ready basically to uh, finance both the research and development, but also importantly, the manufacture at scale of um, a medical countermeasure like a vaccine. Mm. So that's one part of the story. The other part of the story is, of course, um, it this was a disease that affected people in high income countries. Um, and unfortunately, we don't always see the same urgency when we have disease that is localized in poorer countries, right? So Mm -hmm. there was a self-interest there, a national self-interest that drove the very rapid R&D process and the investments in advanced manufacturing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, uh, you know, I guess, so, and, and, you know, it was the other part of this is that um, it took a while for people to figure out, but many epidemiologists could tell from the beginning you know, a 1% case fatality rate for a disease that can affect your entire working age population and senior citizen population is a large number. It took them a while to get there. But, you know, once that started um, sinking in, I think that also contributed to the urgency. But, uh, and then the other part was the investments, of course, made in research and development prior to this period and specifically against microbes like, Uh, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, SARS, 
um, you know, organizations like the Wellcome Trust, like the UK government had been investing in those R&D projects to develop vaccines. They were not on a fast track, but on the other hand, they had financed some of the basic science that enabled uh, a rapid response when when this when coronavirus uh, 19 hit the hit the pavement. So yeah. like all those things together contributed to the very short timelines. And then, of course, you know, the technological piece of this the mRNA piece, I think it's it's um, something that really took decades of investment in understanding the human genome and sequencing the genome and doing that quickly, sharing it wildly, widely all over the world. All of those things also contributed to the speed of the response. Mm -hmm. um, so as you said, we, we looked across, um, the, the, we looked at the period between the identification of the microbe um, and the time of uh, getting the first vaccine developed. And I mean, it's just without any kind of historical precedent. You know, yeah. yellow fever was relatively fast, like mumps was relatively fast, but yeah. this was a matter of weeks and months, not years. So it, it really is remarkable. Yeah. And actually what you had said about the political pressure really st stuck out to me because it was something that affected higher income countries. And had it been, I'm thinking, had it been something that did not get to higher income countries and how was it something that was contained perhaps in continents where there are more lower middle income countries, perhaps the speed at which um, vaccines would have been produced may not have been that fast. I guess part of what contributed to that political pressure was that it was coming from the wealthier nations. Yeah, I do think um, that was a big part of it. But that said, if we look at uh, India, the experience of India, uh, yeah. it does speak, you know, they, they were also hit hard with that um, first Delta wave. And yeah. the, the rapidity of the manufacturing scale up and then subsequently the delivery of vaccines in India is also remarkable. So I think it's partially also about if you're directly affected and you happen to be a manufacturing country like India, that yeah. also contributed to the enormous speed. At which, um, yeah. yeah. Okay, correct. So now moving on to talk about the distribution. So the average time between vaccine development and reaching 20% global coverage for more, for I think you, this was an average across all the vaccines that you were looking at was 36 years, which I guess at some point used to be somebody's life expectancy yeah. in history. And for COVID-19, the time period between development and reaching 20% uh, population coverage was just under eight months, which is not even as long as the human gestation period. Yeah. Um, I guess the difference is just amazing. But the thing is, as I was reading on, I realized that this data is only reflective of the experience of higher, upper middle and lower middle income countries because lower income countries are yet to reach their 20% coverage. And I know this is a big question, but why is this the case? Yeah, so I mean, I think part of the story also has to do with um, th this specific microbe, right? That um, you know, it really is a, a virus that affects the older population most. And lower income countries really do have a very small share of people above 65 years of age. So one one issue is also that um, the the prevalence and incidence of the disease in low in the lowest income countries was not terribly evident. You know, it was never the case, especially in you know, some sub-Saharan African countries, they never saw hospitals fill up, for example, in the same way that they saw HIV. And I think 
that's important even when thinking about vaccination coverage today. Um, that, you know, countries that don't experience the level of death and illness that you saw in India, for example, or in Latin America, you know, they're less motivated, both their populations are less motivated to demand the vaccine and their governments are also less motivated to provide outside of the high risk groups. Mm -hmm. So that is playing a role here mm -hmm. um, that I think is important to acknowledge. But that said, um, you know, the reality also was that the money to buy vaccine um, for low-income countries came late um, and was fragmented. And you know, we know that they built the COVAX procurement mechanism. Uh, you know that that, that didn't exist before COVID nineteen yeah. uh, started spreading, and they had to shake the cup around at these international donors. You yeah. know, during the period. Meanwhile, the high-income countries and the upper-middle-income countries. And the, actually, the middle-income countries in general, they were buying bilaterally. They were buying directly, mm. um, and they were using their own money or they were using World Bank money. So, you know, the money was late. The other big issue was that most of the vaccine purchases, and this was a reasonable decision at the time, mm. you know, they said, who has experience manufacturing vaccine? Well, it's Serum Institute of India, it's mm. Bharat Biotech in India. We'll buy from the big Indian manufacturers because we we have a historical relationship. They they produce their childhood vaccines at scale for Gavi. They're quality controlled. It's great. So if they had little money at the start, they're like, we're going to bet on SII. The problem was, of course, that then India got hit with its own wave and then the export control was put on there. So the amount that they had bought, COVAX had bought with the money they did have in hand in early 2020, um, you know, that those vaccines weren't delivered until much later because of the export ban. So I'd say, you know, it's the money, but it's also um, the the timing of the money. And then, of course, the, the export controls, all of that. OK, what have we learned from this is that, you know, we need more distributed manufacturing or we need the capacity to produce at a much different level to meet needs around the world when something like this hits. Yeah, I I didn't realize how the Delta wave, that second wave in India, and I was in India during that time, and I was actually one of the first ones to have gotten COVID just before that wave got really big. I didn't realize how that would have made a difference on distribution um, and how the fact that it happened at that time would have slowed down the rate at which um, other countries may have gotten their vaccination dose. So that's interesting. And what I wanted to actually go on to ask you was um, whether this difference in vaccination is correlated with the difference in death toll, which in a way you've answered because like you've said, hospitals weren't filling up at the same rate in low income countries as they were in upper middle income countries. So that's there was a difference in the way people were affected health wise also. Was there not any pressure put politically in lower income countries for, for having more access to vaccination? Um, even though they want, even though they want um, experiencing the brunt of it as perhaps people in other nations were. Yeah. I mean, I think um, there was certainly demand, especially when there was uncertainty about whether Delta was going to be at, you know, once countries saw what was happening in India, I think that was when there started to be serious demand for vaccine from the entire world, including low-income countries. Mm -hmm. um, and so, 
you know, there certainly was demand at that point, which is where where are we in time? Like May 2020, it was Delta, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, you saw elites from around the world come to the U.S., the U.K., Europe to get vaccine and things yeah. like that. Yeah. Once, and then we also had, you know, the Chinese manufacturers, of course, were there very early doing bilateral deals and donations with countries, particularly in Latin America. Um, we saw Chile take Sinopharm and scale up very, very quickly before there was access to the mRNA. Um, and, you know, they, that did not happen in Sub-Saharan Africa as much. And that is sort of an interesting thing mm. um, that they, in some respects, it looks to me like Sub-Saharan Africa was more affected by concerns about clotting or one vaccine better than the other because the the urgency of the situation hadn't landed whereas if you look at latin america they took sinopharm they took whatever was available first and that was very smart because mm. um it enabled them to kind of avoid the worst of 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 omicron in some ways but that said you know we were always late with the vaccines unfortunately to prevent um the the level of spread and mutation that needed to happen so even though it's historically fast it just wasn't fast enough yeah if we look at the the other thing that's interesting from this paper and we're just updating the figures so i'll definitely um share that with you uh right and your listeners later but you know the 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 slope on the adoption of um low-income countries is now starting to it looks very much like the upper middle income countries like it's just like a straight line up uh mm -hmm. to coverage so mm -hmm. i think this thing about like maybe there's not demand or maybe demand is waning at least until um march of this year we're seeing you know they're later in time months later in time than the upper middle incomes and the lower middle incomes but but it's still increasing pretty dramatically now um, we are seeing some leveling off in the low-income countries but for the reasons that we have discussed right which is that everyone had omicron now or everyone had delta and so there's this kind of nat so-called natural immunity the, yeah. you know, the issue is how long that lasts and then whether it's still cost effective to vaccinate a lot of the population uh going forward and i think that will affect sort of the trajectory of this in the future i see um I'm just I'm just looking at more of the information I have on hand on what was published in your report. And in terms of boosters also, I think you'd said that the population in high income countries have, I think, 33% have been boosted. Yeah. Um, and that only 0.1% of those in low income countries have been boosted. Um, and again, 6% of the population in sub-Saharan Africa has been fully vaccinated, whereas 58% have been fully um, vaccinated in most European countries. Um, this disparity, is it is it seen as um, fair or understandable um, by say the WHO and bigger organizations like that? The effect on health in low and middle, low income countries is not as bad as it has been in the other countries because of the demographic of the population and also because of the other health issues that they face. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think anyone thinks this inequity is justifiable in any way. I mean, I think everyone agrees that this was late and it was very unjust. Mm. Um, how, and you know, it's, 
But that said, I think there are explanation there are explanations that we as a global community have to take on, right? It's it was unjust. There are elements of um, you know, uh, you know, the monopoly power of the companies, et cetera. But when you uh, I we put out a paper last week, a different paper that I can share with you, but really there's a, a total connection between the the timing of when a country bought. Yeah. And when they received, when they del got the delivery and when COVAX bought and when they got the delivery. And, you know, it's, you know, there is, of course, you know, probably racism and unjustness and all of that. That is certainly there as well. But mm -hmm. there is it is also the case that the money they did not buy early enough, like countries did not buy early enough. Low income countries didn't buy early enough. And that but that was true also of India. India did not anticipate that it had to buy until Delta. You know, and when they realized they had to buy, it was yeah. late and they had to bar exports in order to meet the domestic needs. So mm. it was really kind of a failure of imagination on all of our parts to realize that I have to buy immediately. But this thing was serious enough and it was spreading enough. Mm. Now, that said, in you know, when you look, um, some colleagues uh, also took a look at the cost effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccine and the different yeah. kinds of COVID-19 vaccine. They did this uh, after uh, Delta, but they did not look after Omicron, but at least after Delta, it was still cost saving in mm. most cases to vaccinate with AstraZeneca or J&J in Sub-Saharan Africa, like high cost saving, meaning I would save on all kinds of and not just uh, and this was just looking at healthcare costs. If we considered whole economy costs, obviously it would still it would be even better of, in terms of a purchase. So I think, you know, we, we don't know what that looks like after Omicron. You know, many, many more people have been exposed. But, you know, given that immunity wanes, I would assume that it still remains highly cost effective for those countries to vaccinate at higher levels than they're vaccinating right now. Okay. I would say the good news, though, on vaccination, um, we do see now most countries in sub-Saharan Africa definitely above the 20, 20 to 30 percent vaccinated range with two um, with at least one dose and many of them well above 40. So, I mean, like we're in a different space now than we were with we, this paper that we wrote had data up until the end of 2021. Yeah. So we're gonna update that. We're going to show um, what's the happening. Now. Yeah, the yeah. other thing that's interesting about this is that countries like even though they were late to arrive now, many of them have purchased enough vaccine, including yeah. low income countries, either through COVAX or through donations or, or direct purchasing. Yeah. So they will get their deliveries. Uh, the question now is, will they have the will to vaccinate? Because that's sort of the next thing. And do they have the money to deliver the vaccines in the way that they should? Yeah, so that's that's moving a bit more slowly as well. OK, how reliant are the low income countries on initiatives like COVAX to procure the va their vaccines? Um, how much like I don't know if you would have an exact percentage, but how much are they buying directly and how dependent are they on donations from COVAX? I should say a little bit about COVAX for those who don't know. It was an initiative um, that aimed to make um, the like access to vaccine more equitable. And I think there are 92 middle and low income countries that are part of that initiative. Mm -hmm. um, so it's basically meant to just make sure that people, regardless of which kind of country they're from and the income bracket of the country, have access to vaccine. I think the target was for all of the participating countries to reach 20% before each of them um, gets more than that. So that's just a little about COVAX, but go ahead. 
Yeah. Um, so I would say all but the lowest income countries did end up also making bilateral purchases. Many of them, well, and there were countries also that bought through the African Vaccine Acquisition Task Team that was based at the African okay. Union. Okay. Um, if we look at the, the number of uh, secured doses, so low-income countries have secured doses sufficient to vaccinate at least 32% of their populations, of which, you know, it's probably like 75% COVAX. I think COVAX is still the major source of mm -hmm. uh, their vaccines. And of course, COVAX also channels uh, donations from other countries mm -hmm. uh, like uh, the US or Canada or UK or Europe or something like that. Yeah. So um, those are the those are the, the that's the amount of vaccine that they've actually purchased. But for lower middle income countries, it's much less. I mean, they they've bought enough doses to vaccinate 72 percent of their population of their total population. This isn't even of the adult population. Right. Um, and of that, it's probably like 30 percent from COVAX or less. Oh, um, yeah, so it's, you know, basically the more wealthy the country, the more they just bought bilaterally or secured direct through direct donations rather than via COVAX. Got it. For low-income countries, COVAX is important. I would also say, you know, low-income countries are actually a, a small share of the world's population because countries got wealthier. You know, only 6% of the world's population lives in low-income countries. So that's why we see actually overall about you know we're at like 60 percent global coverage because with two doses because of this fact but there's still you know the inequity is still totally unacceptable you know the worst countries are like democratic republic of congo cameroon yemen those are the countries that have the lowest um yeah. share of delivered doses and things like that yeah um, Interestingly, not all in Sub-Saharan Africa, but like there's also that like very high coverage. Namibia has one of the highest coverage rates in the world. 91% of their population is vaccinated. So there's a lot of heterogeneity, let's say, in sort of how yeah. this was dealt with. Yeah. All right. I'm I'm glad you actually shared what percentage of the world just to give that perspective. And of course, that there are countries that have very high levels of vaccination. I didn't know about that. Um, but more, I had another question about COVAX. Um, in the paper, you mentioned that due to vaccine hesitancy in August 2021, the U.S. threw away 15 million doses of vaccine. Um, why was this disposed of, disposed of as opposed to used? Because I thought that um, I, th I think the COVAX was the COVAX initiative was relying on reaching their two billion vaccine benchmark at the end of 2021 through donations. So I'm just wondering why those were disposed of um, and not donated yeah i mean you know as in many countries uh domestic arrangements don't lend themselves easily to repurposing vaccine you know in the united states we have a very decentralized health system and we have mainly private providers so like once the vaccine was sent to the state level they made some estimate of how much demand would be and then when demand didn't come through at those levels you know, there was not an easy way for the state to send their vaccine back um, or send their vaccine to COVAX. And of course, it also had these expiration periods that were quite constrained. Um, and so that affected sort of, you don't want to send vaccines that are close to expiry, which was another issue that came up, unfortunately, during this period. You, know, mm. you don't want dumping of old doses that can't be used in a reasonable period of time. 
Uh, the other issue is around the, the vaccines that the U.S. was using and buying. I mean, the mRNA vaccines, they're great, but they require the ultra cold chain to deliver. And yeah. that was available in the capitals of some of the poorest countries of the world, but not necessarily in the air, you know, far flung areas that would require, you know, more AZ or Johnson and Johnson or something like that as better yeah. uh, candidates or or even the Chinese vaccines like Sinopharm. Yeah. So I think, you know, that that was also part of it, too, that some at, at a certain point, no one wanted your mRNA donation <laughs> and yeah. sort of said, no, thanks. Um, mm. so, you know, it, it was, it's a little depressing because we sort of rapidly went from scarcity everywhere with all kinds of bad behavior going on to, oh, we have this like huge amount of everything and we don't have the mechanisms in place to deliver with quality. Yeah. And, you know, that's all delivery has always been kind of an afterthought in this effort. And, and that is something that I really hope countries focus on, uh, in the next year. Yeah, because I'm thinking that's a that's a lot of doses that were just wasted. Like if there's no mechanism, in it seems strange that there's no mechanism in place to have these delivered because it seems there are very good reasons. Like you said, like, you know, I mean, it's it's known that the mRNA vaccine requires the very cold conditions to be stored. And of course, transportation expiry dates, I would I would have thought that there would be a better contingency plan for things like this because it's an enormous amount of wastage, right? And like you said, going from extreme scarcity to extreme surplus, which is an even sadder issue because you have what you need, you just don't have it in the right place, um, is it is very depressing. You had said that in half of all sub-Saharan African countries, the per capita cost of providing vaccination exceeds the per capita public spending budget on health itself, like just generally health. Um, so is this to be read as an indication of how expensive the vaccine is or a reflection of how little money is allocated towards healthcare? Yeah, well, I think it's a little bit of both. And actually, the in that uh, description, actually, I'm not talking about the cost of the vaccine, but actually the cost of delivering the vaccine, which okay. actually ends up to be substantial as well, which is another explanation of why it's hard to to deliver a vaccine in countries. So it's it's expensive to deliver vaccines especially to adult populations where we don't have the systems in place already to deliver adult vaccination. You know, I think most countries you know, may have been doing a little uh, like HPV vaccination, which is school age children against human papillomavirus. Yeah. Not most of them, but some of them were doing HPV. Um, some were doing very small amounts of influenza vaccination against seasonal influenza, but nothing at any significant scale. So I think, you know, the cost of delivering this vaccine to the adult population is is high. Um, mm. That's after the vaccine cost. So that's that's something just to consider as one of the reasons why it's gone slowly. But the other issue, of course, is that low income countries, they have low gross domestic product, their economies are relatively small and their governments have um, very low levels of public spending on health. Um, and, you know, again, it's not uh, most countries, but even in middle income countries, you know, the share of your budget or your economy that you spend on health care is pretty modest, you know, especially, well, we don't want to compare it to the United States where it's crazy. But, you know, if I'm spending $38 per capita, um, you know, I have many uh, priorities to address. And, you know, if I don't have that many older people and I'm not seeing a lot of COVID cases in the hospital, you know, this is just not a priority. And I think, you know, we do see that. 
Um, and, you know, of course, we can advocate countries should spend more on healthcare, and certainly the middle income countries, because, you know, I worked a lot in Latin America. Yeah. In Latin America, we've spent between two and three percent of GDP on healthcare for the past 20 years. No change. G now, GDP increased enormously, so the amount of spending increased, but as a share of the economy, it's been yes. like flat in real terms and it shows, you know, the quality is terrible. The outcomes are terrible. There's lots of preventable disease and death. So I do think there is definitely a continued case both to improve the, the amount of spend in, in the middle income countries as well as the quality of that spend. So having worked in this space for a while, how sincere do you think the commitment to social equity is in health and perhaps taking COVID vaccination as an example? Um, are you satisfied with the level of global cooperation regarding health? Ooh, hard question. Yeah. Um, you know, as you say, it's kind of a good news, bad news story. On the one hand, the response to COVID was the most equitable between countries um, mm -hmm. in the history of infectious disease. Um, but on the other hand, there were these like, you know, with a fast moving disease, we were late. We were late everywhere. And um, and it's clear that, OK, we were pretty great on the development of this vaccine, which would not always be the case in the future if we don't invest more. But we were really not good on delivery. Um, and so many countries were really unprepared to do this, in including the high income countries. Yeah. And so, you know, it's both the, the greatest news and the worst news, you know, that to, to have the tra the tragedy of having this highly efficacious vaccine and and then not being able to reach most of the population, um, even in high income countries, especially in the United States, is just so terribly discouraging. Um, obviously, a technology is not um, transformative unless it's used. Yeah. So um, that that so it's like the best of times and the worst of times, as they say. Um, I do think. You know, I also think the rhetoric uh, at the international level is definitely in the right place. Like when you hear world leaders speak, everyone kind of recognizes the problems and has a good discourse on what needs to get done to change things next time. Right. But when you look at the ambition of the of the response, the financial resources that are being placed on the table, um, the the will to move quickly on some of the reforms that would be necessary to prevent something like this from happening again. It's mm. disappointing, like CEPI, which is the entity that finances sort of that early R&D for um, existing infectious agents that um, generate outbreaks in low income countries. Um, you know, they they asked for three billion. They've gotten a third of that from the high income countries. So like we're still not serious we're not serious um and similarly you know it's great to see um new financing for country level preparedness being proposed and discussed in the g7 and at the summit that was held uh two weeks ago on covid19 but um you know the amount of uh, pledges to date are like a tenth of the ones that oh. were hoped for Likewise, like the existing global health organizations like the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB, and Malaria, they're asking for, you know, uh, some amount of money and, and the amounts that have been already pledged are, are, again, just a fraction. So there's so much more to be done. The other point, of course, is that, you know, they sound like, oh, it's a lot of money. They're asking for $3 billion. That's nothing. I mean, we just lost 
trillions and trillions of dollars in the economic consequences around COVID-19. Yeah. What, you know, what has to happen? I mean, even something as simple as, well, the monkeypox outbreak, you know, again, it's likely to be small. We probably only have to vaccinate, you know, the close contacts of the cases. But like, what if we had to find, you know, manufacture small packs vaccine all over the world? Are we prepared to do so? Absolutely not. So uh, same with influenza. That's a real threat. We're just not ready. We don't have the financial mechanisms in place again. So I know we're all sick of thinking about this, but at the same time, yeah. you know, these are really pretty inexpensive investments to prevent worst case scenarios. And, you know, yeah. we've had to live through that uh, so far. Yeah. Okay. Um, how can your research and data be used to create higher equity in this space? And how can organizations like the Center for Global Development promote health parity? Yeah, well, I think yeah, our one of our roles is to sort of take the the big picture to to take a look at what's happening in the world. And um, I hope that this paper will release with new data shows still that we're far behind mm. um, in low income countries. And there's still space to improve in the rest of the world as well. And mm -hmm. so I hope, you know, by keep keeping the light on that persistent inequity that we will um, motivate some of the high income countries to continue to support this effort. And, and, you know, we have these other studies with colleagues at the Africa Centers for Disease Control and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine showing that indeed Johnson Johnson, AZ, and the mRNA, they are very, very cost effective, even in the poorest countries, which means it's worth it in yeah. health terms uh, and, of course, in economic terms to continue to press ahead with vaccination. Yeah. Um, you know, and then the other role that we have is really to look at, you know, are the systems in place in the international agencies, whether it's the organizations like the World Bank or whether it's the global health organizations, like, are we ready to fund differently next time so that we can have vaccine for everyone early, yeah. Um, yeah. or or medicine, whatever it might be. And there, I would say it's still a work in progress. But our role is, to, you know, try and look at what are the constraints, try to call them out in public, and try and work with the different organizations to move ahead. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, also to sort of focus on, you know, our our audience. We sit in D.C. and London, so we're not speaking really to the the governments of low and middle income countries themselves, but we are. Yeah, speaking to the agencies that are intended to support those governments, and I hope. Yeah. Um, what we're also trying to get across is that there is a, a broader picture here of food insecurity, of debt distress, of yeah, knock-on effects from the recessions in high-income countries that need to be addressed urgently and with a greater level of ambition than we've seen so far. So yeah. we'll keep working on all these things. We have like a technical and research role. And then also kind of a, a communications and outreach role uh, yeah. to inform policymakers. Yeah, I mean, like you said, I mean, health is bad. It's it's really just about health. Mm -hmm. It's never just it's it's about everything else that comes with it because it's the person functioning that's affected. And when your functioning is affected, then everything exactly. <laughs> is affected. Um, but yes, thank you so much for that. And I think we can wrap up here. I have gone through everything that I wanted to talk to you about. And thank you so much for making time from what I'm sure was a busy Thursday afternoon. Um, so it was lovely to speak with you. Okay, thanks so much.
Thank you for tuning into this episode of Conversations in Global Health. We hope it gave you an insight into the world of global health and that it inspired you to become inquisitive about these concepts and issues like it did for us. Be sure to tune into the next episode, Democratizing Mental Health Care, Training Lay People to Practice Therapy. Until next time, take care and stay well.